Three weeks ago, the Surgeon General of the United States issued a new report on what he called our nation's loneliness epidemic. A loneliness epidemic. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, he reports that about half of the nation's adults felt lonely or isolated. And then it got even worse because they were locked up at home for all of those months. Those feelings, of course, can lead to mental health issues. And the Surgeon General said that he predicts that the risk of premature death for someone who is struggling with these feelings increases by more than 60%. Some of you remember that old song, People Who Need People. Well, it turns out they're not just the luckiest people in the world, it's what we all need. We all need people, but what happens when instead of presence, we have to deal with absence? Ten days ago, we celebrated the ascension of Christ, the departure of Jesus to rule and reign at the right hand of God, no longer exercising His ministry here on earth. And as marvelous as that is, the disciples had to wrestle with the absence of Christ. And even though the angels in Acts chapter 1 told the disciples that Jesus would come again in the same way that they saw Him leave, ever since that day, Christians have struggled. We have doubted whether or not Jesus would actually return. And many of us wonder how God can be present in our lives when Emmanuel, which you know means God with us, is no longer with us. I mean, the whole point of God becoming a man was so that He could be with us, but now He has dramatically departed from us. And yes, Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us, and we will go to Him when we die, but how is God with me now? How is God with me now? in this life, and all of the challenges and struggles and hurts of this life. This is why we remember Pentecost. This is why we spend a Sunday out of our church year particularly focused on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You see, unlike some of our friends and other Christian traditions, we don't go to Acts 2 as a kind of how-to manual. We don't go to Acts 2 about how to be, uh, have this ecstatic you know, experience of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we believe that Acts teaches us that God is present with us. Even as Jesus rules and reigns at the right hand of God, God is not absent from us. Pentecost tells us that just as Jesus was equipped by the Spirit to do His Father's will in His earthly ministry, now you and me, His followers, will also be equipped by that same Spirit to live lives 
in hope of the resurrection, to live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live lives of witness to God's great work in the world. So today I want to look at two things with you. If we do believe that through the Holy Spirit, God is still with us, what does the presence of God look like? That's first. What does the presence of God look like? And then second, why? What is the presence of God for? What does the presence of God look like? And secondly, what is the presence presence of God for. So first, what does God's presence with the disciples look like? We have printed for you Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, either uh, physical or digital, flip down to Acts chapter 1 real quick. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. While, he was st- while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now that instruction makes sense when you consider Israel's history, when you consider Israel's worship, when you consider the kind of relationship that God had established with the people of Israel. If you were to wander the streets of Israel and ask any man, woman, boy or girl where God was, they would look up to the hill and point to the temple and say there. That's where God is, in his temple. In fact, Israel's God could always be found in his place of worship. First, he told the people of Israel as he rescued them from their slavery in Egypt to construct a tabernacle. And if you remember, part of the reason for that tabernacle was so that he would have a place to meet with his people and so that he would be in the midst of his people. Then, We had Solomon, David's son, construct this beautiful temple, and the the temple was filled with the Spirit of God. God could always be found in his place of worship, and this was a characteristic that was unique to Israel's God. The other gods around Israel, the Canaanite gods, well, they could be worshipped wherever anyone set up a shrine to them an ashtra pole or an altar to Baal. You could worship any of those false gods wherever you set your mind and intention to do it. The Greek gods that surrounded the nation of Israel a little bit farther out, well, they had natural or metaphysical spheres of influence, the god of fire, the god of water, the god of of war, that metaphysical sphere. Only Israel's God, even though he was universal in his power, only Israel's God could be worshipped correctly in one place. You couldn't worship Israel's God correctly on your own terms. 
You couldn't worship Israel's God by giving obedience or adherence to some of those other gods. No, you had to go to a specific place, to his temple, and you had to worship him the way that he instructed you. So Jesus' instruction to his disciples to wait in Jerusalem, it makes sense. If God is going to do something new, if he is going to work in a new way in the world, then Jerusalem will be where the action is. And boy, was there some action that day. Luke describes the scene so that his Israelite readers will sit up and take notice. The sound of a mighty rushing wind from heaven, verse 2 of chapter 2. Divided tongues of fire resting on each of the disciples, verse 3 proclaiming the mighty works of God in foreign languages that they did not know naturally, verse 4. Those aren't just random things. These are the activities that were associated with the presence of God on earth. Theologians call them theophanies, the appearance of God in natural ways. In Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20, God appears to Israel with thunderous noise and fire. In Isaiah chapter 30, the prophet says that God is going to come in judgment with a tongue of fire. When Moses finished building the tabernacle, when Solomon finished building the temple, the Bible describes these places of worship as fire coming down from heaven, as glory filling up the house of the Lord. And the result in both of those cases is that the people gave praise to God. The picture in Acts chapter 2 is nearly identical. The wind... The fire, the praise of God's people, it all tells us that God has come like he came before. Acts 2 intentionally reminds us of these old stories of God's presence filling the temple. A rushing, violent wind filling the house where they sat. That's God's presence. Flaming tongues of fire resting on each of the disciples. That's God's purifying holiness. The glory of the Lord is coming back to fill up the temple. Hear that carefully. The glory of the Lord is coming back. We read in Ezekiel chapter 10 that after Babylon invaded Israel, the glory of the Lord departed the temple. And we never read in Scripture of the glory of the Lord coming back to his temple. Despite Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding the temple 70 years after their exile, despite all of the ministry that continued to happen there in that place, 
This, finally, Acts chapter 2, this is the restoration that Israel has been hoping for. God is coming to rescue and redeem His people. And these 120 souls crammed into this upper room, they are the new, trem- the new temple. They are the true temple. Both individually, Paul will say, you are temples of the Holy Spirit, but also corporately as they gather together, they are living temples, men, women, and children whose lives are being transformed by the presence and the power of the one true God. God is with them. But God's presence It's not just a a, a private religious exercise. Something that that will bless me. No. God is present with His disciples, we read in verse 4. In verse 5, we read that the disciples are among the nations. Because the nations have come to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast. And so that means that God is among the nations, we read in verse 17. You see, soon the disciples will be thrust into the world. They're going to be pushed out by persecution. But right now, God brings the world to them. A crowd has filled up the city of Jerusalem. They've gathered for the Jewish Feast of Weeks, which in Greek is called Pentecost. It was an annual festival. It was one of three required feasts for all Jewish men to attend. They had to go to Passover, they had to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, and they had to go to the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. And around this time, scholars tell us that the population of Jerusalem would swell from about 100,000 people to over a million people. That's why Luke could say in verse 5 that men from every nation were there. The regions that are listed in verses 11 and 12, they spread outward from Jerusalem. North into Asia Minor, west along the northern coast of Africa, and it concludes with Rome, a picture of how far the gospel is going to reach in just a few years. Many of us reading this, thinking through the work of God, we ask ourselves the same question of verse 12. What does this mean? What's going on? What is God doing? God is extending His Lordship. God is establishing His kingdom. But God's kingdom comes in a different way than Caesar's kingdom comes. God's kingdom doesn't come at the point of a spear. God's kingdom doesn't come with the implementation of laws. God's kingdom comes by flooding the earth with His worshipers having heard the message of God's great work in their own language, these new Christians, these new worshipers will return to their far-flung homes to establish embassies of grace wherever they live. 
outposts of the kingdom of God. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, these people, these members of God's kingdom, they will live in anticipation of their coming king. And that means that they are different. Having been filled with the Holy Spirit, they are different. They're going to live not like their neighbors live, not with the same ethical system that their neighbors have. They're going to live with a new ethic. They're going to live in faith, hope, and love. They're going to demonstrate to the world a different way to be human. They're going to reject the gods of their neighbors, the gods of their nations, They're going to reject those gods and the promises they offer because they have witnessed the presence of the one true God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they will put into practice not the grasping of their neighbors, not the demanding of their neighbors. Instead, they will put into practice that generous self giving love that marked Jesus' work on earth. Let me ask you, is this your experience? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Has that work and presence of God been poured out on you? If so, that means that you are a member of His kingdom. You see, friends, you and I, we live on this side of Pentecost, on this side of the inauguration of God's kingdom. Just like the cross of Jesus Christ is not a repeatable experience, Pentecost is not a repeatable experience. It isn't written here so that we pray that God would pour out His Holy Spirit again. He did it once. He did what he promised to do, what the prophet Joel pointed toward. And having done it, he actually encourages all of us now to join in that great work. Do you live in recognition of that great day? Do you believe that God has come and that he has taken up residence in us? You see, the age of Emmanuel, God with us, has given way to the age of the Spirit, God in us. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, you are in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And this theme of being filled with the Spirit and working because you have been filled with the Spirit, it is one of the major themes of every New Testament book. It's the basis of our obedience. It's the basis of our hope. It's the basis of our ability to live the Christian life, to walk the pilgrimage that God has called us to. But how many of us? How many of us struggle? How many of our problems as Christians stem from our struggle to believe that God is with us, that God is in us, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us? 
I think many of us actually are cynics. We believe that God is there somewhere, but we certainly don't think that he's with us. We think that God is actually absent. Friends, if God is not in us, if the Holy Spirit has not been given to us, if you and I are merely called to gut it out and wait to meet him in heaven when we die, then not much about this life is to be celebrated. Not much about this world is to be enjoyed. All we are is to endure, to hide to build up walls around us, to protect us until Jesus comes back. But if God is here, if God has taken up residence in me, then I have the joy and I have the privilege of being a living part of the new creation. It means that I can actually see God's work in me. And I can see God's work through me to the people who are around me. It allows me to approach every day of my life as an opportunity to see the kingdom grow. To see the new creation come. It's going to come in small ways to be sure. But it's no less real. It's no less significant for its size. Folks, my encouragement to you today is do not settle for anything less than the very presence and power of God in you. Don't settle merely for a set of doctrines. A set of doctrines that gives shape to your belief, but has no bearing on who you are, what you hope for, how you live, how you love. Don't settle. Don't settle merely for a moral code, a morality, an ethic that marks you out as different from the society around you, but leaves you feeling cold and dead on the inside. Don't settle. Hear me carefully. Don't merely settle for the wonderful reality of the forgiveness of sins. Because God is building on that foundation by promising more. It isn't just that your sins have been wiped clean. It's that God's own righteousness has been imputed to you. And He is now empowering you by being with you to use you. It is only as we know this reality, it is only as we grasp hold of this new reality that we actually participate in what Pentecost ushered in so many years ago. The tangible experience of the presence of God in our very lives. 
here's how I would like you to take and apply this message this morning. If you're on the outside looking in, if this makes no sense to you whatsoever, if you're not sure what your relationship is with God, in fact, if the presence of God seems more scary to you than comforting, then pause and pray and ask that God would become not just your judge, but also your father. That he would forgive you of your sins. That he would draw you close so that you would be named with Christ, your elder brother. If you are already a Christian, but you find yourself struggling with the reality of this, and you say, Eric, that sounds so wonderful, but it seems so far from my experience, then pray as Paul teaches us to pray in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. For the ongoing renewal, the filling of the Holy Spirit in you. Well, what do you mean, Eric? You just said a minute ago that that wasn't a repeatable thing, that, that the Holy Spirit was given once. He was. He was poured out on all flesh. Our problem is we leak. And so we long for Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us more of himself. For the Holy Spirit to fill us up so that we can live according to his kingdom. And then for all of us, I pray that we would pray. I would urge you to make this a matter of prayer in your life that God would open your eyes to the ways that He is at work. Part of our cynicism, part of our doubt, part of our apathy is that we close our eyes to the work of God in us and around us. Open my eyes, O oh God. Open my eyes so that I can see the Holy Spirit at work in this, our common life together, in the ways that I am called to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh God, let me see you at work even in my faltering, failing, haltering steps toward holiness. Let me see you at work when I quietly refuse to live according to the patterns of this world. Let me see you at work as I spread joy and hope and confidence to the people that you have called me to love, to strangers that I meet, as I point them all to the power and the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, by your own divine power, you have given us the Holy Spirit. From before the foundation of the world, Father, Son, and Spirit conspired together to determine how to save and rescue their people. And now, by that same Spirit, we have been made partakers in that plan. 
we have been filled with the very presence of God. Oh God, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe that promise so that we might be the living temples that you call us to be, drawing all men, women, and children to worship you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.